From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. Welcome. I'm Ben Schachman. Thank you for joining us. Later on today's program, conversations with WECT anchor Frances Weller talking about her experiences over the last year and with law enforcement veteran Mark Benson talking about the challenges of modern policing. But first, a look at a proposed Citizens Review Board in Wilmington, which would, in theory, have the power to review incidents of police misconduct and hold officers accountable. But before we get into where a Citizens Review Board could go, it's well worth reflecting on where it came from. Go back, just over a year. It's May 25th, 2020, a Monday. It's just after 8 p.m. in the city of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Following an arrest for allegedly using a fake $20 bill at a local bodega, George Floyd was murdered by a Minneapolis police officer named Derek Chauvin. Chauvin held his knee on Floyd's neck for over nine minutes. It was about a half hour before sunset, and it was still light out, and Chauvin did this in public, while being filmed by bystanders, including fellow police officers, all while Floyd, who was handcuffed, begged for his life. This was far from the only incident of police brutality, far from the only time police had killed an unarmed black man, but something about this video seemed to hit harder. Perhaps it was the cumulative weight of the stories and the names leading up to Floyd's death. And perhaps it was that brutal slowness of the killing. Not the split-second decision to pull a trigger, but ten minutes of what appeared to many as callous indifference. You can't take back a bullet once it's fired, but Chauvin had time to stop, to heed the calls of the crowd, of George Floyd himself. But he didn't stop. Whatever it was, a tipping point had been reached. In Wilmington, protests showed up in front of City Hall. After a chaotic start, which involved law enforcement using tear gas and pepper bullets to disperse a crowd, the protests continued more peacefully. Public officials were relatively quick to condemn Floyd's murder, and they called it by that name, though it would be nearly a year before Chauvin was convicted of the crime. Intentional second-degree murder while committing a felony. At a press conference in early June, County Chair Julia Olson Bozeman and District Attorney Ben David both called Chauvin's actions murder. We are unified in our condemnation of the murder of George Floyd. Every prosecutor I work with, every police officer who I have spoken with, has been unified in calling his killing murder and nothing less. On Twitter, Commissioner Woody White went further, posting, quote, One word for this. Murder. Completely inexcusable indefensible, shameful. Monetary damages are not enough. Eye for an eye. That would be justice. But in the broader sense, what would be justice? For many, words, even strong words, rang hollow. Protesters wanted more, and in downtown Wilmington, a list of seven demands coalesced. Some changes happened quickly. Donnie Williams became Wilmington's first black police chief, although the chief would argue that had been a long time coming. Some changes were already underway, like deprioritizing misdemeanor drug charges and getting body cameras on all officers and in all police vehicles. For some, the most important change was a citizen review board, comprised of everyday residents working outside of the police department and the city government. But it was the citizens review board that hit the most snags. The board would provide direct accountability for officers, but in order to do that, it would need access to personnel records and body and dash cam footage. Both are protected by state law. So, a year later, where are things? Recently, New Hanover County NAACP President Deborah Dix Maxwell asked City Council for an update. Last year was tumultuous with COVID and its restrictions. 
it shows so many inequities that disproportionately impact the people of color along the continuum of life. Then in the midst of this, on May 25th, 2020, in Minneapolis, a traumatic event occurred that shook the world, the killing of George Floyd. The New Hanover County NAACP, under leadership from the National Office presented to the Wilmington Police Department, New Hanover County Sheriff Department, and others, policies changes that needed to be made at that time. Among those changes was a civilian review board. So I asked the city and city county attorney today to openly and publicly state where does the city of Wilmington stand with regards to the creation of a civilian review board? Myself and the citizens of Wilmington want to know. Mayor Bill Sappho said the city had been working on it, and the city attorney noted there's actually already a draft outlining how a citizens review board could work. The draft was approved by the city's governance council, which includes Mayor Pro Tem Margaret Haynes and council members Neil Anderson and Kevin O'Grady. We'll have a copy of that on the show page if you want to check it out for yourself. Just note that it is just a draft. But, as Mayor Sappho pointed out, the fate of such a board is... In the hands of the state legislature. In the hands of the legislator. Why? Here's City Attorney John Joy. It is in the hands of the legislature. We have to have some legislative adjustment in order to have a meaningful citizens review board. Now, there are citizens review boards in North Carolina, and they do have what's called subpoena power. That's an issue that has been frequently raised in regards to Wilmington's potential review board. But this subpoena power is largely for people, usually witnesses, and not documents. That's important because it means they can't get their hands on things like personnel files and body cam footage. For most, including the city of Wilmington, subpoena power for witnesses is necessary but insufficient. So, all right, what about these two laws? First, there's North Carolina's personnel law, which has been a thorn in the side of transparency advocates far beyond law enforcement issues. In New Hanover County, the law has been repeatedly invoked in a series of incidents in the school district. The district has faced allegations that it has abused these laws to withhold important information from the public. But at the same time, district officials and elected school board members have expressed dismay that they are, in effect, handcuffed by these laws. Here's former New Hanover County Board of Education Chair Lisa Estep. She's discussing, or rather not discussing, details leading to the arrest of former teacher Peter Michael Frank, who is currently awaiting trial on charges of sexual misconduct. We we understand that it is frustrating to feel that the information isn't being released. In all personnel cases, we are very limited with what we can share due to FERPA and personnel laws. Over the last 25 years, there's been several attempts in the General Assembly to make personnel records more transparent, and in the past, there's been pushback from state employee associations citing due process concerns. The most recent bill filed in the state Senate mirrors a similar one from 2011 and would have made public the reasons for demotions, suspensions, and reassignments. Despite having the backing of Senate leader Phil Berger, the bill appears to be dying in committee, the same fate met by earlier versions of the bill. Then, there's North Carolina's more recent law, sometimes called the Body Cam Law, which we delved into last month on the show. WECT journalist Ashley Kozakowski noted that there's been movement in the General Assembly. This follows the shooting death of Andrew Brown by sheriff's deputies in Elizabeth City. Um, So a Democrat in the House has introduced new legislation that would put more of the pressure on the police department. The, The videos would be released within 48 hours unless the police department or sheriff's office goes to the judge or goes to the court and says, we can't release this because of uh, ongoing investigation, public safety. 
A similar bill, filed by Republicans, recently passed in the Senate and would make it easier for families of those involved in the use of force incidents, including fatal shootings, to see body cam footage. But it won't increase the media or the public's access to police footage. That will still require going to superior court. Not a simple or easy process by any stretch of the imagination. Wilmington Police Department Chief Donnie Williams recently weighed in, saying he'd prefer to see things revert to how they were prior to the 2016 body cam law. Me personally, I like the, the, the way the law was before, where it was up to the police chief and you could release or not release the video. And in some cases, I think as an agency head, we may need to get that video out there quick. So, now what? There's currently two options on the table. One, as City Attorney John Joy recently noted, is statewide legislation that would broadly authorize cities and towns to create citizens' boards with access to both personnel records and law enforcement footage. There is a bill in the Senate, it's currently in the Rules Committee, that is of statewide interest that goes to the same issues that Senate Bill 682. That bill, however, also appears destined to die in committee. The second option would be an authorizing statute just for Wilmington. The city's legislative liaison, Tony McEwen, has been working with Raleigh on something of that nature, but to date, there's been no official bill filed yet. It's a cliche, but it's true. The wheels of justice and government turn slowly. It remains to be seen if public officials can speed things up, but for now, that's where things stand. Coming up later in the show, a conversation with law enforcement veteran Mark Benson about other changes that could benefit modern policing. But first, after the break, WECT anchor Francis Weller talks about the past year, both professionally and personally. You're listening to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman, and I hope you'll stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. The last year, to borrow an understatement from Deborah Dix Maxwell, has been tumultuous. Covering the events of 2020 and now 2021, those of us working in journalism have probably used the term unprecedented more than we ever thought we would or would want to. That goes for the nation's political strife, the pandemic, and for criminal justice reform. But not everyone in journalism has experienced the last year in the same way. In the newsroom, People of color experienced both the profound professional challenges of covering history as it unfolded, but also the more private, personal challenges. A difficult time, but in the best cases, it led to serious and seriously overdue conversations. Today, I hope that we're keeping that conversation going. If you watch the news in the greater Cape Fear region, my guest today probably needs little introduction, but I'm going to introduce her anyway. Francis Weller is the anchor and co-anchor for several news programs on WECT, but started as a reporter, and in my experience, she's still got those chops. So, Fran, thanks for being with us today. It's my pleasure. So I want to take people back to the end of May 2020. We were in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, George Floyd had been murdered by a Minneapolis police officer just a few days earlier, and protests uh, started to fill the street in downtown Wilmington. What do you remember about that? I remember that period of time in my life, um, not just professionally, but personally, being the most shocking time that I can recall. I remember thinking, is this really happening? Uh, We were approaching 
um, the reality that this pandemic could be going on for a lot longer than we ever anticipated, then um, (laughs) I go through personally a separation that, you know, consequently was going to be a divorce. And then the same day that we separate, um, George Floyd is killed. And then the next thing I know, I'm having to process this pandemic, this divorce, this um, George Floyd uh, movement that was about to take place. And I just remember thinking, is this really happening? And then I take it out of the personal realm, and I'm looking at my coworkers around me. Of course, I'm working from home at the time, but I'm I'm reading their faces and and their response to all that's going on and I'm like this is this is a horrible time right now yeah yeah I think it took us a long time you know in our news I was over at Port City Daily Time and it took it took us a long time to process that um it it took me I mean just to be completely candid it took me a while before I could sit down and watch the whole George Floyd video it wasn't easy um and then you know once once we started covering the protests, there was that very, very chaotic first day. Um, do you remember as as things started getting more organized, uh, moving into June of 2020, some of the some of the demands that people had, some of the things people wanted to see in criminal justice reform? I just remember everyone reacting to that video once it came out, and the shock and the horror that this really happened in our country. Uh, that a law enforcement officer who was sworn to serve and protect kept his knee on George Floyd's neck for the amount of time that he did, almost nine minutes, or was it over nine minutes? Um, I think at that time, those who were thinking that there were injustices to people of color um, went full steam ahead, and at this point... um, People were starting to understand what Black Black Lives Matter meant. You know, there were questions about it before, and I think people of color and of non-color were starting to say, "Okay, now I get it. Now, now I get it. All lives matter. Let's make no mistake about it." But there was a reason that Black Lives Matter originated, and. Uh, I think people were starting to realize that then. And so I think the demands, if you will, to be treated fairly. Demand might be the wrong word, maybe just basic human decency for, you know, in in the things that they were asking for. Exactly. Exactly. Because we, people of color, are human beings and should be treated fairly and um, equally. Uh, And I think at that point... Um, the George Floyd murder uh, was a wake-up call for a lot of people that things have got to change. We've been tolerating this for as long as we're going to tolerate it. And I think uh, to some extent, the, the messages sometimes went to the extreme, but the overall message was enough is enough. We're not going to put up with this anymore. Yeah. Um, kind of a personal question, but as a journalist who has to sort of, you know, drive down the middle of the road, as we say, mm-hmm. was, I mean, was this tough? It was tough. It really was tough because 
Obviously, people of color in the newsroom, we were pretty much on the same page in our line of thinking that this is horrific and this really does have to stop. And then there was the other side of the newsroom uh, of non-color that had to understand what we were feeling. And so there were conversations that I never imagined that I would have, and I'm glad that I did because we learned a lot about each other. Uh, we even had a diversity specialist come into the television station and meet with staff because the conversations were getting so confusing that we needed to just have an open dialogue. And so it was healthy for the newsroom. It was healthy for all of us because we started talking about things that we had in our minds but never said them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, and as a, as a white guy, I, I had some of those conversations with my friends mm-hmm. where, you know, I, I, we had never gone there for whatever reason. I mean, most likely because it's just uncomfortable. I mean, it's not a, it's not a fun conversation, even though it's an important conversation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, afterwards, we had a lot of those tough conversations professionally and, and personally. Um, one question I've asked all journalists really is, did you see anything change in the newsroom after that? In terms of maybe like how you approach things. Well, let me think about that for a minute, Ben. I don't know that I can say I saw things change. I did see and hear that people wanted to be more receptive to conversations and have more open discussions. But in terms of people changing who they were and how they perceived things, in relation to people of color, I'm not, I'm not sure that I saw a tremendous amount of change. And that's not to say that's a bad thing. It's it, what it says is that it was not that horrific to start with. But we still have a lot of room to grow, and not just in the WECT newsroom, in places all across this community. I'll say it here. I mean, we have a lot of room to grow here at WHQR. Mm-hmm. I don't want to single out WCT by any stretch of the imagination. Um, yeah. Well, I remember the conversation that we had when we brought in the diversity specialist and the general manager said we had to come up with one phrase that uh, concluded our thoughts on that discussion, and he said, uh, it's eye-opening. And I remember thinking... He really is realizing and saying things that he had never thought about before. And so that's why those conversations need to continue. We continue. We need to continue to have those discussions because there are things that happen, Ben, um, if you're a person who is not of color, that you just take for granted because you live in this white world and you don't understand what we go through. And I think what happened... In 2020, after the death of George Floyd, really did open a lot of eyes, and people are starting to realize they may not consider themselves racist. They may not consider themselves a person who is exclusive and not inclusive. In reality, to some extent, they are, and they're starting to realize, I never thought about that. I never thought about that. I remember John, my co-anchor, saying to me, help me to be better. And I hope he doesn't mind me sharing that. But he said, I'm learning things that I didn't even think about. So help me to be better. 
And I think we can all help each other to be better by having more conversations, just open, candid conversations. You know, I'm a person that, truthfully, I can say I don't know that we're all created equally. We're different. Men are different. Women are different. So to say that we're created equally, I don't know that we're created equally. But to be treated with the same amount of respect because you are a human being is no longer under consideration. It is something that is an absolute must. And people of color are now starting to say, this is not an option. I am human, and I will be treated as such. You know, for white listeners and, you know, people in the profession like me, I I personally have been encouraged to use the um, uh, expired registration example. Um, A lot of us let our registrations expire during the pandemic, (laughs) including me. Uh, quite a bit, actually. And I was pulled over, and I was annoyed and frustrated, and I knew I might get a ticket. And one thing that never entered my head was mm-hmm. that there would be mm-hmm. any threat. Like, I knew I was going to be in the office 15 minutes later, absolutely. Just maybe either with a written warning or a ticket. That was really the only mm-hmm. variable. And it's been that way my entire life. Well, and let me be clear on this, Ben. I like you, if I got pulled today for a speeding ticket, if I got pulled today for an expired tag, I am not going to be in fear of rolling my window down. I think I'm going to have a conversation with the officer. I'm going to try my best to talk my way out of that ticket. <laughs> but I think the it, it will be, Miss Weller, you were in the wrong, you were speeding, you were whatever. And I'm not going to be in fear of my life. I'm not an African-American male. And it is a different story for African-American men in this country. And we're learning that. And anyone who doesn't want to accept that is just living in denial. We have seen the evidence time and time again that it is a different experience for African-American male, especially an African-American male, quite frankly, who looks a certain way. If you're on a shirt and tie, you're probably going to get a different attitude from some officers in this country. If you're in dreadlocks and you're looking like you just smoked a big fat blunt, you're probably going di- to get a different response from some officers in this country. Now, I will add to that, I still firmly, Ben, believe that most officers of the law do what they are hired to do to serve and protect. I, right now, if I get in trouble, will call 911 in a heartbeat and will feel confident and comfortable that the officer responding will take care of me. And I think most people can feel that comfort. Not everyone can say that. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Let me just take a moment here. If you're just joining us, this is the newsroom from WHQR Public Media. I'm Ben Schachman, and my guest right now is WECT anchor Fran Weller. So, Fran, and I, I just want to say I want to thank you for sharing the, the personal side of that just so candidly. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the professional side. You've covered this issue. WECT has covered this issue of police reform locally in Wilmington for a while, and you've known uh, Wilmington Police Chief Donnie Williams for a while. Um, can you talk a little bit about the work he's been doing? Well, I think when he first took the job, I remember I did a 30-minute special with Chief Williams, and one of the things he said was he was going to talk with each officer individually. And this was, of course, after 
the three officers had been fired for what they did. Yeah. And he said he was going to do it in a month, and of course that did not happen. It took a lot longer, and we had a conversation about that last week when I was at the um, police training facility for an event, and he talked about the fact that it took longer than he anticipated, but that he was going to meet with every officer. And I remember asking him then, do you still have concerns that there are officers on the force who may still be a little off-center? And I think um, the reality is, of course, I mean, the officers who were fired, he knew them, he knew them well, never suspected that what came out of their mouths would have come out of their mouths. So um, I think what is good is that he is meeting with the officers. He's making it very clear that that kind of behavior will not be tolerated. Uh, he is in charge now, and those who don't like it, and I think there have been some who didn't, can leave the force, and that's their option. Um, I just I think we are living in a world now, Ben, and certainly in this community, where the, the statement has been made loud and clear. Uh, what was tolerated before just simply won't be tolerated anymore. And it's not that the demands are that great. It's just, it's just doing the right thing. It's being fair to people, no matter the color of their skin, um, and just understanding that what was allowed before simply won't be allowed anymore. I think that's, that's really well said. Um, I'm going to leave it there if it's okay with you. It's fine with me. I hope that I've answered your questions and you know I was quite candid about some of the comments I hope I did not offend anyone I have certainly been far more open over the past year about my feelings than I have ever been you know it was safe just to stay middle of the road and not say anything um, but I think we all found that we had to get out of our comfort zones and just speak our truths and to say who we are what we are and be okay with you may need to learn some things. You may need to understand some things. And so, again, and I'll say it over and over and over again, we just need to continue to have conversations, open and candid conversations. Uh, I'm far more comfortable around someone who's just going to be honest and tell me, I didn't have a lot of black friends growing up, so I don't know the black experience. I'm okay with that. I have a lot of white friends who live that life. And let's talk about it. Let's talk about the fact it's okay you didn't grow up with a lot of black friends. But that doesn't mean that we don't exist and those that you are around, you can't accept as just people. Am I making sense? Total sense. Okay. Fran Weller, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. After the break, another perspective on the events of the last year and the prospects for meaningful change in the criminal justice system. I'm Ben Shockman. You're listening to The Newsroom. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. The debate over criminal justice reform is often framed in simple Manichaean terms. Outside activists want to change law enforcement, which is committed to the status quo. But that's not always the case. 
And there are those in law enforcement, from rookie patrol officers to chiefs and deputies, who would like to see meaningful changes. On some issues, activists and police are miles apart. But on other issues, there's less daylight between the two than you might expect. Getting that police perspective, however, is not always easy. It's no secret that within law enforcement agencies, here in Wilmington and across the country, there's a pervasive feeling that the media is innately hostile to the police. Whether or not that's justified, in some cases, it's led to a kind of omerta. To put it bluntly, police feel vilified, and as one officer told me off the record, I'd rather chew off my arm than talk to the press. My guest now is willing to speak to the press. His name is Mark Benson, a 24-year veteran who served in the Wrightsville Beach Police Department and then the New Hanover County Sheriff's Office, including time in the Vice and Narcotics Division. Benson is also a graduate of the FBI Academy and the host of the Blue Line Radio Show. Mark, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So to start out, uh, you're coming from a particular law enforcement perspective. Um, Tell me a little bit about that. I started in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, as a beach officer down at Wrightsville Beach. And what we saw down there was seasonal, as you can imagine, tourists and and, uh, Wrightsville Beach back in the heyday. Then I went with the New Hanover County Sheriff's Office, and I learned under law enforcement officers that were seasoned back then. We saw what we thought at the time worked. You know, the system wasn't that broken or wasn't that problematic. Even in the gang days and and drug days uh, when I was in the drug unit, you got to understand back in the day when when officers were getting in trouble, and I used air quotes just then, when they were getting in trouble, it was like a DWI, you know, and the sheriff would call them in and, and terminate their employment. And that was in my 15 or so years with the sheriff's office, it was, uh, it was like two or three and that was it. We were learning from people that were focused on one task and one task only, and that was law enforcement. Gotcha. So old school policing, you call it. Right. You know, not wearing 14 hats. We were there for a specific cause, a specific reason, which was to take care of the citizens that we were serving. And it meant that we had that law enforcement hat on, and, and that's what we focused on. We didn't multitask into wanting to be a social worker, a teacher, a caregiver, all this kind of stuff, because that that's where things got confused. So from this point of view, uh, what are things about the criminal justice system now you think could change? Many things could happen in the criminal justice system, but it's going to take a lot of work because it didn't get there overnight. So when we look at what the criminal justice system is today, which is minimizing how much how much exposure the criminals are going to be faced with. I mean, when you're looking at the difference between state time back in my day or especially federal time back then and today, which is day for day uh, on a 10 year ticket or a 10 year sentence, you're going to pull 10 years uh, today. It's I, I guarantee you on a 10 year sentence, they're not going to pull more than two years. So there's no incentive or there's no goal for uh, the prosecution, the, the criminal justice system to change that now because they're rolling so fast through cases and getting these people in and out to where you're you're not really seeing anything anybody being held responsible. That's the prosecution side. What about the you know actual law enforcement agency side? Law enforcement agency side of any type of reform is we've got to get back to the basic fundamentals of law enforcement. Serving the public as a law enforcer, 
not as somebody that needs to necessarily understand everything. I mean, right now they're calling on us to be cognizant of the fact that they that some individuals have mental disorders. You know, some of the criminals that have been shot lately that have been shot by law enforcement and killed by law enforcement, uh, the family and the and the attorneys are saying, oh, well, there might have been, he might have had some mental illness or we can't sit there and psychoanalyze each and every individual while we're, we're addressing them. So when you get back to the basic fundamentals of law enforcement, which is patrol, you, you observe, you detect, you stop any type of crime from happening, uh, and then you investigate and you arrest. And when we can get back to the basic fundamentals of law enforcement, that's going to make things better. But what our problem is, and the biggest problem in law enforcement today, is trust. It's a trust issue with the community, especially inner city communities, which have never really trusted law enforcement. And we've tried to make every effort to make that happen. But if they see that the criminals that are affecting them aren't getting serious time and those criminals can threaten them or they're back out on the street in zero time, then they don't have a trust factor that law enforcement is going to be there to protect them. Yeah, there's all right, so two things here I, w- I want to get a little bit deeper into. One is this idea of the, the mental health issue, which I think, you know, there's been calls all around the country to, you know, get social workers involved. I'll give you an example of a recent case from last year uh, without naming names. There's a gentleman on the north side called 911. Um, I listened to the 911 call. He's clearly having some kind of uh, episode. He's, he's seeing things that aren't there. Uh, it's in the middle of the call where he's asking for help. And the dispatcher asks him, and I think this is policy, if he has any weapons. And he says, yeah, I got tons of guns. And it's not clear if, he's, if that's part of the hallucination or not. Um, you know, how do police, I mean, obviously, by default, it's a mental health call. He's calling because something's going wrong. So, but police show up. You know, how, what's a better way? Is there a better way to deal with that? Well, I mean, it, depending on, I, I didn't hear the call, but, you know, the thing is, is, is he threatening anybody else? No, not on the call, no. Okay. So if he's not threatening anybody else, all he wants is help, then he's no different from anybody else that is saying, hey, look, I'm looking to be involuntary committed or voluntarily committed. Um, so law enforcement, you can plug that equation in for the responding unit. They're going to be headed there to begin with just because he called law enforcement. He called 911. So I, I guess the underlying question for me is right now there's, um, through RHA, there's one one counselor who can come down. RHA is here in Wilmington, but the counselor's up in Jacksonville. 60, 60 minutes to 90 minutes, which is a long time. Minimum. Minimum. <laughs> so for your average patrol officer who is, through no fault of their own, not a trained mental health counselor, uh, you know, do you, I mean, in your experience, do you know any officers who would say no to like 10 more counselors that they could be here in maybe 10 minutes? Is that, is that a helpful thing or is that not really part of the equation? It, it, it's a helpful thing, but, but this person is calling out to 911, which is a what? An emergency number. It's not like he called into a non-emergency number or he called into the hospital, Caroline, and said, hey, look, I'm thinking about doing harm to myself and get in that dialogue with them, and then they contact 911. Oh, my God, this guy's getting ready to do something to himself. If he's looking with a sense of urgency, then you have to roll the same way that he's rolling. And if he's he's thinking that you're going to help him immediately, then if you put him off, 
you know, for the 90 minutes or whatever, or if law enforcement has 20, you know, mental health caregivers here, is that still going to work? And, and, you know, so when you look at supplementing that law enforcement officer, who's going to do that work? But it's no different from any crisis negotiation. Um, you know, negotiators learn exactly what their parameters are, but there are so many of those individuals that put themselves in harm's way that causes the death of the person that called for help to begin with. Yeah. And, and we've had several cases like that. Um, we had a case up in Wrightsburg. We had two cases in Wrightsburg that I can call out immediately. Both of them were SWAT call-outs. And one individual we ended up taking down, but our officer, our negotiator, almost, well, was injured, but almost got killed because the individual, uh, that, that crisis negotiator, went and did a face-to-face with the person that already had shot themselves and had a gun on them. And that's just something you never do, but that happened. And then we had another individual that was approached from the yard by a crisis negotiator and things went south. And when the crisis negotiator was trying to back out of the deal, he fell over some lawn ornaments and people thought he had been shot and they opened up on the individual that had called for help. So when I hear from people in law enforcement like yourself that we ask police officers, deputies, so on and so forth, to do too much. Um, I always think of this mental health component as being one of the things that is too much to ask without a lot more training and a lot more help. It's a lose-lose, Ben. It, it's, it's, if you've got a 21-year-old or a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old law enforcement officer with some experience under their belt or no experience under their belt, every day, every call is different. And, you know, so when they're tasked to handle a situation that is only handled by professionals— in the medical field, then how can we expect them, how can we expect it to be a win? If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Newsroom on WHQR. I'm talking with law enforcement veteran Mark Benson. So, Mark, the second thing I want to get into is what you said about trust. The relationship between, um, you know, black and low-income families uh, in those neighborhoods. I mean, I don't want to be euphemistic about it. I just want to be real about this. You know, one of the stories we've all heard was from back in 2019. Um, I believe this was on the south side. They found a victim with a, with a gunshot wound, and um, uh, police officers responded. Uh, it had just happened. People were just now coming out of their houses, and they asked the, the victim, who shot you? And I can't say on the air what his response was. Um, but it was the Tupac Shakur response. Yeah. Uh, so that's where we're at. I mean, I think with uh, – so how do you fix that? But But – and, and it's interesting that you would bring that up because I remember when I was in high school in the mid-70s that we had a, a like a, we call it a shooting gallery, but it was a, it was a drop-in at a, on Dawson Street between, I want to say, 13th and 14th uh, and Dawson. It was called the Seahorse Tavern. And they had shootings there on a regular basis. And the interesting thing is, is that, you know, some of the cops that I knew even back then would talk about that there would be somebody shot and 250 people standing there. And they would be like, who shot? Who? Who? Give me some information, please. I ain't seen nothing. That was the common response. I, I, I didn't see anything. So when you've got 200 witnesses back in the 70s that saw nothing, 
and you've got 40 witnesses at Kidder Street, or in the case that you're talking about where the wit- the victim himself wouldn't give up the information of who shot him, that's a cultural thing. And I don't mean to say that in a negative because it, it could be taken that way, but where was the mindset of that person before they got shot or they witnessed that crime? Was the mindset already instilled where snitches or we don't tell or that might exacerbate things between us and who? Um, so, so when you talk to people and try and understand what their trust factors are, their trust factors are you're not going to get the bad guy. We're going to get the bad guy. You know, street justice, we're going to get our own, you know, pound of flesh. But the thing is, is that when you have a situation like what happened at Club 609 or whatever on at Kern Market, where one of our most notorious killers shot a guy in the face in front of everybody there, and there were enough witnesses, but yet when he was taken to trial just before his trial date, he had his people do drive-bys on the witnesses' houses and they ended up saying, we're not testifying. And I don't know, as, as a rank civilian, I don't know if I could really blame them. Exactly right. So as a culture, their mindset is the system is broken. We cannot trust law enforcement, uh, whether it's black, white, purple, green. They're just not going to trust law enforcement. And if they're not going to trust law enforcement to protect them, yeah. then where do we go? And, and, and so to answer your question is that they have to have an understanding that that's what our role is. And when we go in there and try and be social workers and we try and be teachers and we try and be caregivers, they see that watered down as far as the strength of a law enforcement, the symbol of what law enforcement means. Fair enough. This has been part of the narrative about police reform for the last couple of years, uh, especially here in Wilmington after the firing of those three officers. Uh, one of the things that came up over and over again is these were all veteran officers, 20 years, more or less, each of them, some of them more. And the argument was, you know, how could nobody know so on and so forth? So let me start with this. You know, in your time in law enforcement, did you know bad cops? Absolutely. Did you, Absolutely. Know, did you know racist cops? Absolutely. What happened to them? I mean, what was sort of the, the police culture around cops like that? We policed our own. I mean, we... we Back then, we would step in and stop any type of malbehavior. When we heard of bad guys, when we heard of misdeeds and stuff like that, we called it out. Sometimes we reported it to our uppers, but most of the time we could handle it in the ranks. And and the white culture officers did their thing. The black culture officers did their thing. But they were still one. When they went to go put bad guys in cuffs or whatever, it didn't matter. I mean, when we kicked doors when I was in the Vice Narcotics Unit, we had black officers on our on our drug unit. We had white officers. Every time we went into an armed confrontation somewhere, I didn't care what their color was. All I care was the fact is that we represented law enforcement. We represented that badge, and that badge was going to get us through to the next day. When you look at what happened with Wilmington PD in specific, is that I don't condone any of that talk. I don't condone any of that rhetoric. I don't condone any of that thought process. But the thing is, is that these were these were officers, whether you could spot them a mile away or whether they were sitting right beside you, they had deep-seated, deep-rooted issues that they only could handle. 
there's not anybody that could discipline them. There's not anybody that could pull them off to the side and say, what's your problem? And, and had it not been for this inter- intercepted conversation, they might still be working for Wilmington PD today. But if you want to mic up everybody's car and listen to their private conversations, you might be shocked and it might scare you half to death with what's really going on out there and what kind of discussions are being had. I think we agree a, a bad apple has effects beyond just that officer, right? Right. So, what, so what do you do with the bad with the spoiled barrel? Well, it is the barrel. It is the barrel because everybody's closed a blind eye to it for so many decades. So you've got that one bad apple. You can put a bad apple beside another bad, uh, a good apple, and that good apple is going to turn bad. If if you were trying to save the fruit, let's just say it's it's in your kitchen, it's in your warehouse, and you want to save each and every individual, every good piece of apple that you can find. What are you going to do? Are you going to dump the entire barrel, or are you going to hand pick through the barrel to where you get all the good apples out of the barrel, and then you clean the barrel? Law enforcement agencies need an enema; they need to be cleared out. Back to the basic fundamentals, they need to understand that what they're doing is they're fixing an apparatus to where law enforcement can operate out of that are colorblind and genderblind and all this other kind of stuff that's, that's the culture today is that they need to have an understanding of when they come back into that environment of being a law enforcement officer or a law enforcement agency, they're going to have to start from scratch, but their scratch is this is what we want to do, want you to do, and it's this simple. So imagine a world, world where we really circumscribe the role of an officer. It's just protect and serve. It's like you're describing. Um, is the current amount of training enough? I mean, this is the constant comparison is that a cosmetologist has to have like 10 times as much. You know, is the, is the BLET program right now? Is that enough, or does it need to be more based on what you would suggest an officer is being trained for? I would think that, well, depending on what the curriculums are today, um, I would think that there is enough to get them on the street and then continuing their education as they roll. There's training that needs to be done yearly instead of just qualifications for firearms. They should have qualifications yearly for, for driving uh, emergency vehicles. But when you're looking at the basic fundamentals of law enforcement, it's how to interact with public, how to gather the information and facts that you need to put on a report or to investigate a crime, how to look and detect for crime. It's not a whole bunch of anything else that they have to be aware of. They don't have to learn how to speak a foreign language. They don't have to learn how to psychoanalyze somebody. They don't have to learn how to, you know, be a teacher and how to handle kids with kid gloves. They just need to know how to be a human being first. And that doesn't take hours of training. That just take that just takes a, a philosophy. You're obviously coming from a different perspective than some of the, you know, the protesters we've seen in the street, some of the advocates for criminal justice reform. Is there anything that you would agree with that maybe that that you and maybe someone who was you know in the streets last summer in Wilmington might both agree that should change about law enforcement. Absolutely, because when you look at what happened in the George Floyd case, I, I looked at that in horror. I could not believe that uh, that officer sat there, Derek Chauvin sat there, stood, put his knee in his neck, and and stood uh, st- practically stood on top of him 
for for nine minutes. I also don't believe what happened to Tony Tempa down in in Dallas, Texas, for thirteen minutes. The same thing. You don't do that. And law enforcement needs to understand. And and positional asphyxia has happened in hundreds of cases across the U.S. And these officers are still doing it. Why? I have no idea. And that falls on the administrators. That falls on training. And it falls on common sense. And if these officers out there are, are doing any type of inappropriate behavior like that, that are injuring or, or killing people, that bring the lawsuits on. Bring the corrective behavior on. Bring the terminations on. Criminal charges, you know, I don't know that you could show intent. But, you know, the thing is, is that you should know better. And negligence is, is, is not criminal, but it, you can be held accountable for it. For me, when you start looking at corrupt law enforcement, when they're, you know, either dealing drugs or ripping off bad guys or killing people or anything like that, there should be a higher standard. Just as there's a higher standard for them on the street to protect you, there should be a higher standard uh, for them to be prosecuted as well. All right. Well, I'm going to leave it there. Mark Benson, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to our guests, Francis Weller from WECT and Mark Benson, and to Ken Campbell and Andrew Craig for engineering this program. If you missed part of the show, you can find it at whqr.org, and if you're listening on Friday, you can catch a rebroadcast this Sunday at 1 p.m., followed by Coastline. You can also find the show as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher, and if you subscribe, you'll get new episodes as soon as they're released on the web. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. <laughs>